Section 2 of The Wounded Name by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 1, Part 2. 4. Twenty minutes later both adventurers were peeling off their soaked garments before a hastily lit fire in a room of the three trouts, and shortly afterwards, wrapped in blankets, were ensconced before it in a couple of large chairs, with two steaming glasses beside them. And Walters the groom, and to his own surprise, was riding across country on Monsieur de Cotemas's cob to intercept the bath coach at Midhampton and bring back the French gentleman's valise which it contained. This neat strategic idea having occurred to his master on his way to the inn, when it was borne in upon him that no clothes of his were likely to fit his guest, taller than himself by nearly a couple of inches. Logon had just now had, too, the opportunity of verifying what his first impressions had already told him, that his compatriot was an exceptionally well-built young man, with a lithe strength of steel. He had also seen that he wore round his left arm, just above the elbow, a little strip of some plaited or woven substance, not fine enough to be hair. Laurent had only obtained a momentary glimpse of this object, and his curiosity had not been gratified by another. But he had now the prospect of being able to study at leisure the appearance of this strangely made acquaintance, and he proceeded to do so. He had the clear pallor and fine skin, which often go with hair of warm colouring, and his, as it dried, was gradually resuming its proper shade, the deepest tone of September bracken. Even his eyes, which at a distance looked dark, were seen at closer quarters to be of a deep red-brown. The rest of his features were noticeably straight and delicate and strong, the chin a little long, curved slightly forward and was squared at the corners. The mouth was firm and sweet. Altogether a face of great individuality and charm, without the weakness which sometimes accompanies the latter quality in a man. Laurent took him to be about twenty-six, a couple of years older than himself. Oh, I do not know, he observed at last, ashamed to scrutinize any longer if it is correct to introduce oneself in this unconventional attire. I ought to have done it earlier. My name is Cotemac, Laurent de Cotemac. I've always lived in England. And mine, said the other, setting down his glass, is La Rochetterie, Aymar de Rochetterie, at your service. For my part, I've always lived in France. What? cried Laurent, nearly bounding out of his blanket. La, la roche de riz. L'oiseleur. You, monsieur, are l'oiseleur. Is it possible? In a lesser degree, his companion also showed surprise. My name is then known to you, monsieur? But this is not Brittany. Oh, but I am a Frenchman and a royalist, cried monsieur de Courtemar. I've known of you, monsieur, for some time. No, I assure you that your name is not so unfamiliar over here as your modesty assumes. We have heard of the defence of the Moulin Brûlé. Indeed, 
We were speaking of you only this morning, my great-aunts and I, and a gentleman who thinks he came over with you in the pressed packet. But he said you were... It's more than extraordinary. Loiseleur himself here. Oh, ma foi, but this is to find oneself famous, said Monsieur de la Rochetterie, laughing. One had, perhaps, the good, or ill, fortune to be known on the other side of the channel. But over here, who cares for an obscure brigand, as our foes are so fond of calling us? Even in his present unusual attire, or absence of it, a young man who looked less like a brigand could hardly be imagined. And the question of birth could be set at rest forever by the beautifully shaped, if sunburnt hands, emerging from the blanket. So Laurent, remembering Monsieur de Vic's picture of the hairy individual, not a gentleman, whose hand he had longed to shake, and mindful that he and the ants were coming to supper that evening, foresaw an amusing encounter. But to be sitting here, tête à tête, with this young hero, who had known countless days and nights of hazard and discomfort, among the gorse and broom, with only a handful of men and his own wits and courage between him and Napoleon's vengeance. And he wrapped in a blanket because he had jumped into the dart after him. It was incredible. He pulled himself together. I believe, monsieur, that you bear a title, do you not? he asked, thinking of the introductions he should have to effect. A small one, vicomte. You, monsieur, perhaps also? Laurent named his. But I do not use it here. When we are in France, I suppose I shall have to tack it on again. Ah, you are returning, of course. Almost immediately. Yet, since it is not really a return, it will be strange. I was born in England. My father, now dead, married an Englishwoman and settled here in the early days of the Revolution. So, Madame Votre-Marc is English, observed the Vicomte de la Rochetterie with interest. That, then, accounts for the perfection of your accent, Monsieur de Cotemarc, and also, if, as a Frenchman, you can forgive me, for an appearance not altogether French. As you stood in the river which has so happily brought us together, I'd no idea that you were a compatriot. Oh, you must remember that I've lived all my life in England, said Laurent to this. That, probably, has even more to do with it. And, since we're on the subject of personal appearance, may I say that I never took you for French, either, until you spoke. Your hair, you will excuse me, I trust, is of an unusual color for a Frenchman, is it not? And the young man good-humouredly took hold of a damp bronze lock. How this tiresome stuff! Yes, I believe it is not often met with. Indeed, I found it inconvenient, at times, for that reason. In a tight corner, one usually does not wish to be identified. As a matter of fact, I have some Norse blood in my veins, and the, and the other member of my family who shares that with me has much the same hair. So, no doubt it comes from that strain. Oh, I hope that the next time I fall into a river I shall be wearing it short, which is probable, for I only keep it long to be like my chouan. Oh, I wish it would dry. He put up his other hand to his head, and the blanket slipped instantly off his left shoulder and arm. 
and before he could replace it, Laurent's eyes had involuntarily darted to his elbow, and away again. "'Are you were looking at my bracelet, monsieur?' inquired its owner, in his pleasant voice. "'Now, there, no doubt, is the explanation of my safe navigation of your river. "'Are you superstitious, monsieur de Cotomar?' "'No more than I, probably. "'So I would like you to realize that I wear this ridiculous thing "'for the sake of other people's superstitions only. "'I mean, of course, my men's.' "'And the little half-smile he gave Laurent, "'he seemed rarely to smile fully, "'had a tinge of mischief in it. "'Oh, I could not help seeing it,' confessed the latter, rather red. And that, then, is the famous charm which makes you invincible. How might I? Loiseleur thrust out his arm again for his inspection. The mysterious object upon it resolved itself into a band of plaited rushes, or coarse grass, about half an inch wide, fitting just tightly enough not to slip down over the elbow. I will make you another confession about that, monsieur said its wearer, looking down at it. What is not even the original, Jacques Dier, which is supposed to have been bestowed upon me by the fairy Melusine, or her deputy. In a somewhat rough-and-tumble life, a bracelet of rushes will not last for ever, and so I've renewed it from time to time. Still, there's a strand of the original in it somewhere. He smiled again as he made this rather cynical admission, and finished the remains of his punch. Laurent was examining the talisman with deep interest. There's no fastening. Then, monsieur, the the fairy Melusine, and plats it on your arm every time? Oh, she does, replied monsieur de la Rochetigui. Of woman's fingers, of course. Perhaps he was married, but Laurent did not somehow think so. He could not pursue further the question of the weaver, and, moreover, the possessor of the rush bracelet was now looking thoughtfully into the fire. "'And nothing has ever touched you, in all the time you've fought, since you wore that?' asked Laurent after a moment. Loiseleur turned his head, and the inquirer had a little shock of surprise. Or had he merely imagined that a profound sadness looked for a moment out of the red-brown eyes? It was gone so quickly that he was not sure. Gone by the time his companion answered simply, Nothing. Oh, I've never received a scratch, so I cannot claim the honor of having shed my blood for the king, as so many better men have done. Oh, yet, observed Laurent, the king seems to consider that you've done fully enough for him without that. That ribbon. Yes, his majesty was pleased to send me the cross last year. Some of my men had better deserved it. They had no talisman. You must really need a strong head, Monsieur de la Rochetterie, not to believe, after all, in the efficacy of yours. Oh, tell me, if I'm not impertinent, whether there's not some one action which will break its power if you happen to do it. In most fairy tales it is so. I believe, said the young leader, wrapping himself up again, and that there's some dark story in the past history of this object, or its predecessors, but I do not know what moral it is supposed to point. Apart from that, Morbleu, what an extraordinary thing! It has just happened to me, and I never gave it a thought. 
"'What is it?' asked Laurent eagerly. "'How oh, I must never cross running water, except by a bridge, or on horseback, or by some means of that sort. I must never go through it in person. And to do myself justice, and again in deference to those Chouans of mine, I never have, until today. Oh, but you cannot deny that I've crossed it this morning, a water of the most running.' and he looked at his fellow adventurer in running water with unfeigned amusement. 5. As Laurent de Cotomac tied his stock that evening in his own bedroom, he was both thoughtful and excited. To fall into the river and narrowly escape drowning, and to have a total stranger risk his life for him over it, to discover that the stranger in question was someone he knew about and admired, and, finally, to possess him at the moment as a guest under his own roof. These were sufficient reasons why the stock should be well tied, and sufficient excuse for the fact that it was not. Nor had Laurent quite shaken off the shyness which had unexpectedly descended upon him when he was driving home from the three trouts, with Loiseleur beside him. That sudden hot conviction that he, with nothing to his credit, had been chattering too freely to this young hero. Had or had not Monsieur de la Rochetterie seemed a little remote, a little withdrawn, during that drive? A knock at the door, interrupting these cogitations, heralded the entrance of Madame de Cotemar, looking charming but pale. Laurent's heart smote him as he turned round from the dressing-table. She kissed him long and closely. She had not yet got over her emotion. "'I'm just going down to the drawing-room, my darling,' she said. "'I hope Monsieur de la Rochetterie may be there. I want to see him alone. When you brought him to me in the garden, I was, I fear, rather selfishly absorbed in thoughts of you and your danger.' Laurent nodded. Oh, he tried to make me promise not to mention what he did, but of course. Oh, an absolute stranger, Laurent, and such a risk. Oh, I cannot get accustomed to the idea. Like her son, Madame de Courtemar seemed a firm believer in the theory of intention. Yet it had already been made perfectly clear to her by Monsieur de la Rochetterie himself that he had in no sense saved Laurent's life. Maman, said Laurent, putting his arm round her. If you can't get some more colour into those cheeks, I shall not eat any dinner. Oh, dearest, dearest little mother, I did not do it on purpose. Oh, see, now, I'm going to kiss them very hard. Oh, that's a trifle better. Now go down and thank Monsieur de la Rochetterie for spoiling a very elegant suit of clothes, if he gives you the chance. Unless I've gauged him wrongly, you'll not get very far. There's one thing that comforts me, Laurent, said Virginia de Cotemar, and that is that you would have done just the same in similar circumstances. Perhaps, replied her son, but not so quickly. The enlightenment of Monsieur de Vic and the old ladies that evening was indeed great fun, only it was too soon over, and Laurent was a little afraid of embarrassing his guest who seemed genuinely averse from anything resembling posing or display. 
but probably just because he was so free from self-consciousness and so simply dignified, he took the ensuing adulation lightly, and yet with a fine courtesy, as if he were aware that he was a young man receiving the homage of the old. If he found the worshippers a little absurd, he did not betray it. The impression which he had produced on Tante Clotilde, even before she realized whom the Monsieur de Vicomte de la Rochetterie of Laurent's introduction cloaked, was marked by her making him the suggestion of a curtsy of fifty years ago, with all Versailles behind it, an honor which no Englishman had ever received from her. And Monsieur de la Rochetterie had kissed her hand in a manner which also had tradition behind it. Yet more important to Laurent, really, and then the unqualified success of his little coup de théâtre, and then the joy of being able to whisper to Monsieur de Vic, oh, I expect you think, Monsieur, and that Loiseleur has shaved since you saw him last. Oh, I expect he has, but not to that extent, was his mother's murmur to him, just before they went in to supper. Your Chouan has already enslaved me, Laurent. I think he is charming. But now supper was going forward, and Monsieur de la Rochetterie was making obvious efforts to efface himself and to avoid being what he had become, the centre of the little festivity. But with everybody determined to make him so, it was impossible to get out of the position. First of all, Monsieur de Vic's mistake of the packet had to be explained. It appeared that Loiselog had come over in it, and that he had heard another passenger being pointed out as himself, which, as he added, with a little smile, enabled me to escape an attention that I had then no idea I should encounter. Ah, Vicomte, interposed Tante Clotilde significantly at this. Are you doubtless in England? How am I indiscreet? On the king's business? One felt it almost needed courage to reply, as Loiselog did. And no, madame, on a purely private matter. However, Tante Clotilde's large face wore the air of one who knows better. I think, said Monsieur de Vic, and then addressing him, that I once had the pleasure, a few years ago, of meeting a gentleman of your name, a good deal older than you, however. And your father, perhaps? The young man's face changed subtly. My father was guillotined with my mother during the terror, monsieur. It only needed this avowal to complete his prestige in the eyes of the ants. A ripple of emotion went round. Where did you meet Monsieur de la Rochetterie, did you say, Laurent? inquired Tante Clotilde when she had contributed to it. In the river, ma tante. The old lady looked severe, for she did not like being jested with. Oh, please express yourself more accurately, great-nephew. So Laurent elaborated, without changing his statement. On the heels of the ensuing sensation, Monsieur de Vic asked suddenly whether it was true that the guest possessed, or was popularly supposed to possess, a talisman of some kind. Oh, quite true, monsieur, responded Loiseleur soberly. Oh, I really have it a magic garter, or chartier, as the common folk call it. Then he caught Laurent's eye and smiled. 
but its virtue is, of course, all nonsense. The popular voice, in short, ascribes to the possession of a charm what is in reality due solely to your own skill and valour, observed Monsieur de Vic rather sententiously, but pointing this remark as a compliment by a bow. Oh, I did not mean that, said Aymar de la Rochetterie, looking for the first time a trifle disconcerted. And I spoke too strongly, for undoubtedly my possession of the Chartier has influenced my men and given them confidence, and they are exceedingly superstitious, so in that way the thing has its value. And that is, in fact, why I wear it. And how did you acquire this Chartier? inquired Tante Clotilde massively. A witch gave it to me, madame. A witch, a real witch, exclaimed his hostess. Oh, how, Monsieur de la Rochetterie, and why? The why makes rather a long story, madame. We shall hope to hear it, then, after supper, announced Mademoiselle Clotilde de Cortemar, in a tone that seemed to settle the whole matter. And, perhaps, the whole story of the Moulin Brûlé, too, hazarded Monsieur de Vic, but Loiseleur shook his head with a little smile. Madame de Courtemar looked from one to the other. What was the Moulin Brûlé? she inquired of the old gentleman in a low voice. But it was Tante Clotilde who replied for him. Oh, my dear Virginia, really, before the hero of Penesque himself. The details which reached us of that exploit were, I doubt not, inadequate, but surely we all treasure them too securely in our memories to ask what was the Moulin Brûlé. Poor Madame de Courtemar, thus brought to book at her own table, before and on account of her guest, flushed. Monsieur de la Rochetterie bit his lip and looked thoroughly uncomfortable, and Laurent's anger was kindled. You forget, I think, ma tante, he said as politely as he could, that my mother, after all, is not French by birth, and it is quite plain that no one can have told her the story, for it is not one which she could ever have forgotten. Oh, quite so, very well said, put in Monsieur de Vic hastily, and he gallantly monopolized the old lady's attention, while the awkward wave in the conversation caused by the boulder she had cast into it spent itself. Indeed, Laurent, looking down the table after a moment's silent fight with his annoyance, was relieved to find that the hero of Penesque was smiling delightfully at his hostess, and heard her say, smiling, too, How will you ever be able to forgive me, Monsieur de la Rochetterie? Oh, madame, replied Loiseleur, you cannot conceive what a relief it is to find that there is one fortunate being in royalist circles who has not been pestered with the tale of that detestable old windmill. I sometimes wish I'd never seen the place. When the ladies, following English custom, had left them, Monsieur de Vic drew in his chair and concentrated his attention on his fellow guest. Oh, I remember the Vendée, of course, he remarked, and the great days of the Chouannerie and Cadoudal's days. You are too young to recall them, monsieur, but you have relit the sacred fire. And no, only fanned the embers, said Loiseleur quickly. The fire is always there. 
and the Breton does not change. Indeed, some of mine are identically the same as those of the great days. And one has the same devotion to rely on, the same obstinacy to combat, the same superstitions to use or respect, and the same kind of warfare. That warfare of hedgerows and heather of which one has heard, put in Laurent, his chin on his hands, and which needs, I imagine, a special aptitude. Oh, I suppose it does. At any rate, it is the only kind which the Breton really understands. You have to be always on the move, if you are very few men, as I had, at least at the beginning, when I started with twenty-five. And that is easy. And if you keep moving, you're not only invisible, but the enemy thinks your numbers are much greater than they are. I've never had more than six hundred men, but they were all picked, and if I'd told any one of them to go immediately and cut off his hand, the only delay would have been the finding of the chopper. Well, that is all over now. I suppose I ought to say, thank God. I do say it, but one does not like parting from one's comrades. You have disbanded them, then? Not yet, but I shall do so directly the king is actually in Paris. Ah, oh, the king in Paris, exclaimed the Baron de Vic in a rapt tone. And he began a loyal reverie on that theme, to which the two young men listened with becoming patience. Then he reverted somewhat abruptly to the question of Loiselot's amulet, and asked so many questions about it, that in the end Monsieur de la Rochetterie, beginning, Laurent fancied, to be slightly bored, offered to show it to him. And while Monsieur de Vic murmured delightedly, Oh, Monsieur, you are really too obliging, took off his coat with an apology to his host and turned up the sleeve of his fine shirt. Laurent, leaning back on his chair, his hands behind his head, looked on, amused. Little exclamations broke from the old royalist as, spectacles on nose, he bent over the table and scrutinized the circlet closely. Well, that is really the fairy garter of the legend. Oh, dear, dear, how wonderful. After all these years, so fresh and well-preserved, oh, there must be something in it, after all. Oh, it is indeed to be hoped, monsieur, and that you will never lose that. The owner of the Chartier, with his bare arm stretched out before him on the mahogany, caught his host's eye over the grey head. Yes, as you say, monsieur, remarkably well preserved. And Laurent, smiling back, had a delightful sense of complicity with him. Oh, he was not going to tell the old fellow what he had told him. Oh, my last doubts are removed, murmured Monsieur de Vic, taking off his spectacles. Now I know that I really have shaken Loiseleur and no other by the hand. The bearer of that name who was turning down his shirt-sleeve, stopped and flushed very slightly. "'Why, monsieur, and did you think I was an impostor? he demanded. "'Was that why you wanted to see the thing?' And he looked at the old gentleman very straight and challengingly. Poor monsieur de Vic, meeting the spark he had so tactlessly struck out, confounded himself in apologies, on which monsieur de la Rochetterie, evidently quickly penitent, but still with a little air not free from hauteur, begged his pardon for having suspected his motive, and, peace being restored, 
Their young host suggested that they should join the ladies. How very interesting, that, he thought, as he opened the door. And so he's got a hot temper under that quiet exterior of his. How oh, I think that, for all his modesty and charm, I should be sorry to take liberties with Monsieur le Vicomte de la Rochetterie. 6. Installed on the sofa in the drawing-room, Tante Clotilde immediately motioned to Monsieur de la Rochetterie to take his place beside her. Now, Vicomte, the story you promised us, if you please, the story of the Chartier, she said with heavy graciousness. How oh, I can recall no such promise, madame, replied Loiseleur. However, if you conceive that it would interest you. And Monsieur le Baron, he added, flashing a glance half malicious, half apologetic, on that offender. I will endeavour not to bore you too much. He stirred his coffee for an instant. You must know, then, that in the district of Penesque, there is a legend of an enchanted garter, given in the Middle Ages by that ubiquitous immortal, the fairy Melusine, to a knight whom it rendered invincible. This garter was said to be still in existence, in the keeping of an old witch in the forest of Armor. We still have witches in Brittany, whom some held to be the fairy Melusine herself. Oh, I must also tell you, if you will pardon a reference to my personal appearance, that this knight, known to after ages only as Loiseleur, seems to have been so unfortunate as to possess hair of the colour of mine. Well, I had, or I have, a specially devoted follower named Jacques Evenot, who comes from the neighbourhood of my little estate at Cécine. This man, who not only knew the legend, but the old woman, too, who had the Jacques must have begun by wishing that he could procure the lucky talisman for me, but hesitated to steal it, for fear the theft would bring misfortune on me. And then he must have pondered how to trick the witch into giving it me, of her own free will, and how, therefore, to inveigle me, at the time perfectly innocent, into playing the part as it should be played. For it seems, but I only learnt this afterwards, that if a young man with reddish hair came at sunset to her hut with a hawk on his shoulder, and asked for a night's lodging, offering in payment merely a sprig of mistletoe. And well, he was the dead fowler come to life again, and she would give him the chartier as of right. Evenot, a simple peasant, successfully contrived that all those coincidences should come about, except, indeed, the finding of the hawk. One afternoon he got me into the heart of the forest on some pretext or other, and deliberately misled me, so that I lost my way and had to ask for shelter at the witch's hut. Knowing her reputation, I made no difficulty about a suggestion that I should offer her the bit of mistletoe which he had plucked for me. One learns to humour superstition in Brittany. How about the hawk? Yes, that was strange. How did he procure the hawk, then? asked Tanto Dill as he paused. Oh, he did not, madame. Chance procured it turning his fraud for him into reality, and somewhat frightening him, I think. For, as we went through the wood, I came on a young hawk half-stunned on the ground, with a broken wing, and I picked the poor bird up and carried it for a while, and ended by putting it, all innocently, on my shoulder, where it stayed. 
And so it was there, quite correctly, when I knocked at the witch's door. He smiled, that most attractive smile of his. And the witch, monsieur, and she gave you the charm? Oh, without demur. I was only afraid that she was going to kiss me. She did kiss my hands. You must remember, madame, that at the moment I was completely in the dark, and had no idea for whom she took me, nor why, with the tears running down her wrinkled face, she brought out with such awe from a box of battered and time-blackened silver, and this little dried twist of rushes. And then the legend suddenly came back to me, and as she and Evanot were by now in a frenzy of excitement, and my protests had no effect, I accepted the talisman, which was, so the wise woman assured me, the identical magic circlet which Melusine had bestowed on the original Loiseleur, of whom I was, somehow, a reincarnation. I retain, naturally, my own ideas on that subject, but afterwards, of course, my men always called me by that name. And you have the Chartier still? You wear it, perhaps? asked Madame de Courtemagne. Loiseleur bowed. Oh, I always wear it, for my men's sake. But, as it was shrunken with age, and had moreover been cut, I could not wear it where a garter should be worn. So the witch fastened it round my left arm, like a bracelet. The eyes of all the ladies went to his sleeve. But that it would have been out of place, and they would all, obviously, have dearly loved to invite the young man to remove his coat. Laurent thought it charming of him not to spoil the story for them by confessing that it was not exactly the original Chartier, which he wore now, and hugged himself to think that he had been the sole recipient of that confidence. Oh, but what, monsieur, asked Tante Bonne a little timidly, was the story of the first owner of the Chartier? Oh, alas, madame, I fear that it was tragic. The legends say that he was betrayed by the woman he loved, or else that he gave her the garter in obedience to her whim, and, in consequence, his enemies fell on him and slew him. I am not sure which, but it comes to the same thing. Oh, I hope, began Madame de Cotomac, rather rashly, and then, checking herself, blushed like a girl. Maman, maman, said Laurent to himself, and was surprised to see Monsieur de la Rochetterie look across at her, without the shadow of offence, and to hear him say, A merci, madame, but of that there is no danger. A little enigmatic smile just touched the corners of his firmly cut mouth, and Laurent presumed it meant that he was sure that no woman would ever have sufficient power over him to play Delilah. At any rate, no woman, or man either, had the power to get him to talk any more about himself that evening, and the affair of Penescoe went untold, till the guests had driven away in the venerable fly which had brought them. And now, maman, said Laurent with a sigh of relief, oh, Monsieur de la Rochetterie, as a sign that he has forgiven you for your lamentable ignorance, shall tell us too the true story of the Moulin Brûlé. Will you, Vicomte? And to save me from the possibility of being crushed like that again, oh, Monsieur, pleaded Madame de Cotomac, putting out her hand to him. Loiselog bent his handsome head and kissed it. How oh, you could extort anything from me, without weapon, madame, he replied. Oh, let us get it over, then. 
seven. Late that night, Laurent, deeper than ever in the toils of hero worship, stood, candlestick in hand, in his guest's bedroom, and looking at Monsieur de la Rochetterie as he took the watch from his fob and laid it on the dimity hung dressing table, said earnestly, oh, I hope you will sleep well. He himself would dream tonight of those revolving sheets of flame, the sails of the riddled Moulin Brûlé, of the Emperor's soldiers seizing fire at last, thinking that they were merely wasting ammunition on the Holocaust, whose heat was too great for them to approach, and of the dozen blackened figures, or more probably of one figure in particular, bursting out of that inferno of smoke and blood, and completely surrounded though they were, cutting away through the stupefied besiegers. Oh, I suppose you can sleep in any surroundings, he added, for though he knew that Loiseleur must often have spent the night in the open, that reflection was somehow as incongruous as the recital downstairs with this composed and very well-dressed young man, now calmly winding up his watch in the best bedroom of Kington House. Oh, I much prefer a bed to any other surroundings, replied the Vicomte de la Rochetterie. Yours, I'm sure, is most comfortable. Here, as Laurent afterwards realized, he must have discovered on what a vain employment he was spending his time. But instead of holding his useless watch to his ear, or otherwise betraying to the man in whose service he had wrecked it, the effect of dark water upon its interior, he quietly laid it face downwards on the dressing-table, glanced at the mantelpiece to ascertain that there was a clock in the room, and went on. Oh, by the way, Monsieur de Cotemac, I hope my early start tomorrow will not prevent my taking farewell of Madame la Comtesse. Laurent reassured him, warning him that, unless he chose to have coffee brought to him in his room, he would have to face an English breakfast. But for this, Monsieur de la Rochetterie expressed a preference. Oh, I trust you have everything you require? then said Laurent, reluctantly preparing to take his leave. And now, there's one thing that you will need in the morning, monsieur, and that is a hat. You cannot travel without one, though you can remedy the lack excellently well when you get to Bath. You must really allow me to supply you with one. Thank you, said his guest. Yes, I suppose that to travel so far bareheaded might excite comment. Especially in your case, thought Laurent, though by now he admired the hair on cue. How do you know Bath, Vicomte? he asked, as an excuse to linger a little. No, not at all, returned the traveller. Oh, it is a prodigious fine place, pronounced Laurent. I hope I am not impertinent in assuming that it is not, fortunately, for the good of your health, that you are going there? No, answered Loiseleur. Oh, it is certainly not for my health that I am going to Bath. He was fingering, with bent head, the seals of his watch lying there. Laurent had the impression that his mouth tightened as he spoke, and got an instant conviction that Monsieur de la Rochetterie's visit to Bath was no pleasure to him. He wondered, not for the first time, what the object of his journey could be, he whose Chouan was still under arms, yet who avowed that he was not on the king's business. And his eyes, following the strong, slender hand, noted the crest on the back of the watch, a swan with its neck encircled by a crown. He even distinguished, on the scroll below the proud and laconic motto, 
saw that. Both pleased him. Then he made a more determined effort and bade his guest good night. There would always be the morning. But the morning was disappointing, as usually on the occasion of an early start. And there seemed no time for conversation, no opportunity for learning any more of the visitor. The inspiration which had come to Laurent of begging the latter to spend a day or two at Quinton House on his way back from Bath proved unfruitful, Monsieur de la Rochetterie explaining that he would probably have to return by London and Dover. It was Madame de Courtemar who had most of Loiseleur's attention during the English breakfast, and it seemed to her son that it was not till the last stage of all had arrived, and he was walking down the village beside his guest, with Walters behind carrying his valise, and that he had the chance of a word with him, and then there seemed nothing to say, just because there was so much. He tried, indeed, and to thank him anew for yesterday's act, but even that expression of his feelings was debarred him. Aymar de la Rochetterie declared that thanks for a thing which he had not done made him feel as fraudulent as he sometimes did over the Chartier. So, Laurent, after murmuring stubbornly, You meant to save me. I only wish I might have a chance of repaying you some day, had to desist. Then the coach came rumbling in. You promised my mother that when you are in Paris, you'll give us the pleasure of seeing you, monsieur, Laurent reminded the traveller. Oh, I want the promise made to me, too. Oh, I do not need to be doubly bound, retorted Monsieur de la Rochetterie, smiling. And you, Monsieur de Cotemag, when are you coming to Brittany? We have a little river at Cessigny, with indifferent fishing. Though, to be sure, I've succeeded in catching excellent trout at pont au Rocher. But that is a good way off. Oh, I do not need to be tempted by fishing, responded Laurent in his turn. Oh, some day. A hearty shake of the hand on both sides, and again that charming smile of Loiseleur's, and he was mounting to his place. Oh, at any rate, he's got my hat, reflected Laurent, watching the coach roll off. Then he went rather pensively home. End of section two.